Welcome to this week's Hotel Analyst podcast, where, as per normal, you'll find the pair of us uh, here gathered to talk about matters of the moment in the hotel investment space. Uh, I have Andrew Sankster, the editorial director of Hotel Analyst, with me, and my name is Chris Bowne. I am the editor of Hotel Analyst. And if you like what you hear, then please do go along to hotelanalyst.co.uk and find out a bit more about what we provide in a more granular level of detail for our subscribers. The first topic we're going to look at this week is what's gone on in the uh, resort space. Uh, we had some numbers uh, recently from Fosun, the, uh, the Chinese-based tourism group who have got Club Med as their kind of principal brand, but they've also grown some other resorts uh, in and around the place. Uh, also, following on from the latest uh, thoughts and numbers and hopes from uh, the German tour group TUI uh, and also some comments from Jet2.com who's been busy readying and then standing down their planes over the last few months as travel restrictions have been applied then eased or not. Um, so going back to Fosun, a lot of their business is in Club Med. Uh, they've got uh, obviously a lot of Clubman resorts in and around Europe. They've got summer ones, they've got winter ones in the Alps, but they're increasingly growing uh, Chinese club meds as well. Um, and Fosun's a, a very large uh, group, so we haven't had, uh, in the manner of Chinese groups, they don't seem to be borrowing money like you might have to if you are a European tour group that's making losses. Um, or perhaps you are borrowing it, but you just don't have to tell us all, all the detail about that. Uh, but they seem to be poised for a, a reasonable return as their club med resorts are back open and up and trading again. There were two clear things for me that came through from these, this set of uh, tour operator results. The first is that this is clearly the worst downturn the travel sector has ever seen. Uh, you just cannot begin to measure it against any other previous downturn. This is just in a whole league of its own, one that everybody hopes is never going to be repeated. The second thing is um, that there is no shortage of demand once supply constraints are removed. And this is the issue. It's, it's not a demand crisis here. It's a supply crisis in the sense of um, supply has not been able to, to, to fulfill that, that what is clear demand out there. Um, this points to a quick recovery, but um, just as you mentioned, Chris, about Jet2 sort of readying and then standing down their um, jets, uh, this, is, this has been the case at TUI um, as well, and um, they ramped up their um, supply in terms of ramped up their capacity, um, but the actual amount they of customers they're allowed to take simply didn't match that um, ramp up unfortunately for them so ironically although Q3 was much better now their Q3 is in the the April to June bits of the calendar year um, in that April to June bit they carried far more customers at 876,000 versus the January to March bit where they carried 159,000 but the problem was they actually lost more money in in that in that uh, uh, April to June bit um, 
in fact 449 million euros against uh, 376 million euros that's underlying EBITDA in their results um, so th this is a big problem and, and you know we would probably give this no stars in terms of if we hadn't already given governments no stars many times <laughs> for their very um, mixed messaging on this whole travel piece now no, governments are walking a tightrope they have a, a populate they have populations which you know half of them want sort of to carry on as we are if you know in fact opinion polls suggest it's more than half want to carry on with very strict uh, uh, controls and the rest of us actually want to get back to normal life so that they're in a tricky balancing act but this ineffective um, messaging really isn't helping um, the recovery um, and it, it, it's a relatively straightforward thing to get right and they do need to start sorting this out and it's so confusing now I'm about to jump on an airplane to go to the conference in Berlin which is the one delayed from March 2020 finally taking place here in September 2021 um, shows just how long we've been out of action on the event side of things um but the the hassle factor in actually getting that sorted out now i'm pretty experienced at booking you know i don't have a pa or anything i'm pretty experienced booking my own travel but it took me i mean the best part of a morning to work out well i'm <laughs> we'll see chris i mean i might end up stuck at the airport but uh, as far as i can tell i don't need a pcr test to get on the plane to germany I do need a PCR test to get on the plane back from Germany to the UK. Now, I'm fully vaccinated. I've got all my certificates, etc., etc., for that. I'm hoping that works. Now, the German government's recognising my NHS um, fully vaccinated status. Not all European governments are recognising the NHS version. They're insisting on the, the EU version, which is just a, an added nightmare. But, but even this whole PCR testing, even though I've got to get the PCR testing done, on the way back that's costing 40 50 euros in berlin and it's costing me another 43 pounds for day two of my pcr test uh, back here in in blighty now it's just you know that's best part of 100 quid you know uh, it just it's prohibitively expensive for normal leisure travel and hassle as well because of all the risks as we've outlined previously on the podcast this does need to get sorted out and i have to say you know why the uk government is being so strict to somebody who's very vaccinated like me um whereas the german government seems to accept me um i, I don't know it, it, it's very frustrating this um and it's made me significantly more pessimistic i have to say over the last few months about how quickly international national travel will return i think it's going to take well into next year before we get back to anything like where we were and i'm i'm increasingly skeptical will be have a full return by the end of uh, next year i hope i'm wrong i hope mm. what we do see is a um you know a, a change in attitude but uh, this is going to impact those hotels which are uh, dependent on international guests now this is the big gateway market so particularly london and edinburgh that luxury hotels there and the upper upscale the upscale hotels particularly depending on international business travel they're going to be uh going to it's going to be a tough old time for them conference hotels similarly i suspect so i think that we can draw out a longer recovery period i think most other hotels are well on the way to a very healthy recovery if they don't have uh, much reliance on international travelers so i think that's you know where they've been able to substitute with domestic um 
so even if you've got a luxury resort which has historically been dependent on international you can replace that relatively straightforwardly i um in this year at least with domestic customers well and, I, so, and not just for research purposes i was looking at club med resorts this week in the in oh, the yeah, alps yeah. you know i having spent a very happy christmas uh, one two or three winters ago and again you know my excitement and my interest is tempered by the uh, the question marks over what degree of hassle I'm going to have to endure to get there and get back. Not not yeah. not just the hassle of being at an airport and <laughs> getting through an airport, but the hassle of, of booking needless tests. Anyway, yeah. we shall see. Yeah. Um, yeah. Right, let's talk about our next topic, which is looking at the co-living sector, which seems to be bouncing back quite strongly as, um, as restrictions on uh, social distancing ease. Um, quite in, in common with with many other bu- buildings with beds uh, businesses you know they had a, they had a tough uh, last year uh, but things looking to grow back quite strongly the younger generation of course who are much less concerned about the uh, the potential effect of of catching a, a dose of covid on their on their health uh, are quite happy to get back to some kind of normality so bookings for co-living spaces in urban centres uh, looks to be building back nicely um, and th- there was also of course inevitably a little bit of corporate activity there's those businesses that have had a bit of a cash flow hit and are perhaps slightly damaged by that and then others who are looking uh, perhaps in a slightly more positive way about uh, opportunities for growth consolidation and so on and um, quite recently The Collective which is a, a UK brand quite a successful brand with a big pipeline in the UK and Europe and, and the US have hired Credit Suisse to do a strategic review for them of what they should be doing next uh, who knows could be quite interesting times it is uh, the one thing with co-living I st- am still struggling with is actually what it is <laughs> um, and, and and to get my head around you know well isn't, isn't, it, isn't, it, isn't it student apartments for when you've stopped being a student that's that's as probably as good a definition as i've heard chris to okay. be honest um, um but yeah i mean it pretty much is but uh, it, it's the overlap piece which is confusing mm-hmm. i think it's it's where you know it, how when is it sort of uh, residential a short short old tenancy type residential moving into um short-term accommodation um uh, such as extended stay hotels I mean, you know, there's a whole spectrum of things there and the big noise at the moment on the um, real estate investment side is is build to rent and this I think there's a massive overlap with build to rent mm. and um, and co-living and in fact if you look at you know if you go somewhere like the British Property Federation um, where and, and look at how they're defining uh, build to rent it looks very much like co-living i mean they're talking about um stuff like uh lounges about gyms uh, shared services all of this kind of stuff and you think well that, that is co-living isn't it i mean maybe it's just the size of the room perhaps but i think that just extends according to the target market so if you're going for your when you've just come out as you've suggested chris you've just come out of uh, university and you're in that uh, well, i don't know what the phrase is for that the first jobbers um you know in the 20 somethings um th- then you'll probably put up with a much smaller room because you're out partying mm, okay. um, mm-hmm. um um but as you get older you're going to want more space uh uh, and you know you um, you know form a relationship and um, then possibly kids and you just your space requirements just increase now build to rent supposedly caters for that whole gamut that whole range whereas a uh, um, co-living i think as you suggest chris is more focused on that that 
at first entry level piece i i think is where we're where we've got the gap but uh the, the, the excitement around this of course is that what you're looking at at the moment you're able to invest into co-living projects at yields which are higher than hotels um but the the potential is for those yields to drop right down to the level of say residential which are very low um and of course uh you know all other things being equal you see a massive increase in price mm. this this is the you know and and that that there is the triumph of how do you judge an investment it's risk return liquidity so um the risks coming down return is going to be this the same and the liquidity is going up um so on that that's what's going to drive this and this is where the excitement is but you know you've got all these other players coming in so we've had this um lloyd's bank um coming in talking about fifty thousand homes within the next decade now this will make it significantly bigger than the already biggest residential player in the uk granger has got about nine thousand or so homes so it's like five times six times the size mm. of granger um if it hits that target a big if there i'd suggest but you know so it's a very it's a fascinating sector right now which is it can go a whole range of different ways um and how it evolves and, we, and of course we've already got people in our space who are very active in it um airbnb now is talking more and more as we said last week airbnb is looking more and more at the longer lets and this makes it a player in this in this sector quite significantly so um I, what I would say is I think there is going to be some tightening. It's an exciting investment area, but um, you're going to really need to know what you're doing. And, of course, there's a massive crossover with uh, with hotels as well because, um, I mean, if you look at uh, The Collective, for example, they, they actually list their, their New York property on Booking.com and you can uh, you can book a room there by the night. As if it's yeah yeah well that's that's that yeah, overlap yeah, piece yeah. with that absolutely so it's booking it's airbnb expedia's um what's it verbo um you know all of that stuff um you know is, is looking at long lets as a, a obviously the the pandemic and the restrictions around the pandemic only made them keener mm. on that because that was the only game in town in some cases um where where hotels were had to had to close or effectively closed um so they had to they had to really focus on that piece um so it, it, it's yeah I, I i'm not sure uh how i i don't think what i don't think we're going to see is is hotel groups existing brand hotel groups dive into this area i think that is possibly going to be a bit like there's a lot of criticism at lloyd's bank at the minute in terms of they're saying this is an adjacent sector well it's it I think it's a real stretch to suggest that investing in residential real estate is an adjacent sector Being a to yeah. a bank, yeah. which is, yeah. yeah. Um, we, I'm sure it lends a huge, it's one of the biggest lenders into residential in the UK, um, but that's quite different lending into it to actually being an active principal in it. Um, and I think Lloyd's ought to learn its lesson from when it got involved in um, um, being a principal yeah. investor. <laughs> and it, Well, not Lloyd's, it was Bank of Scotland, of course, um, which now part of Lloyd's, um, and it went horribly wrong for them um playing on sort of both sides of the fence as it were so i think it, it, you know there's a lot of risks here um and were i a shareholder of lloyd's um i think i would be um a little bit nervous about it although i think my understanding is that they're i mean not just that i don't look at sh 
bank shares that much but uh, my understanding is they actually went up on this announcement but uh, we'll see we'll see how it now, goes next we're turning our attention to what's going on in india now not so long ago uh, just seems like a few weeks ago uh, the mainstream news media were were worrying about the, uh, the scale of growth of covid19 cases in india it seems that wave has, is now waning um, and the key players in the hotel space uh, are as in other in other sort of parts of the world are looking to work out what to do next uh, indian hotels has just uh, approved uh, the board there has just approved a rights issue which will bring in about 400 million dollars uh, to help them well not just survive but plan perhaps some acquisitions or other activities to to speed up growth and also we've seen that um, uh, another a conglomerate that owns hotels in India, ITC, they are looking now, uh, talking out loud about splitting up their group and hiving off their 100 or so hotels they've got across India. Um, and then in more recent weeks, we've had reports from uh, one of the resort operators, Mahindra, they're talking to about potentially growing quite aggressively over the next two or three years and acquiring new properties. So. Um, it's not all bad in India. There seem to be uh, some some promising opportunities, and of course, uh, Indian hotels is uh, has seems to have been quietly being transformed over the last three or four years by its uh, CEO Puneet Chatwal. The organisation called Brand Finance that um, does rankings of brands. They did a report on hotels, top fifty hotels, and they labelled the Taj Hotel brand as the world's strongest. And I think that is very big praise for Penny Chatwell and what he's done at the group since he arrived there a few years ago. Uh, the Indian market is very exciting, has huge potential, but it's also a very difficult market. Um, it, it's I mean, a lot of people talk about India saying it's held much promise and hasn't really delivered. But I, I think there are signs that it's beginning. The Indian economy is beginning to motor. It's certainly in GDP terms now overtaking China's. Um, I, it's too simplistic to say India is the next China, but I certainly think India's economy is due for very rapid growth um, and will be one of the world's big economies. It's going to overtake the, the likes of the UK, for example, over the next decade or so. Um, and clearly the hotel sector is going to be a beneficiary of this GDP growth. And, you know, uh, I, I, the Indian Hotels Company, which is part of Tata, the biggest conglomerate in in India, um, 150 years old. It it sort of it, it, it is a sort of um, has it, its fingers in almost every bit of the Indian economy. Um, having that as a parent, I think, gives um, IHCL a huge uh, advantage. And 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 you know, Chatwell has done a lot to exploit that. I think, and and he's been you know. He's done some things out of his playbook from when he, you know, he was chief development officer at, at Resador, um, of course, CEO at Steigenberger. Um, and, you know, he's he's brought some of those things as switch to asset light, focus on management contracts, franchising and leases. Um, um, so he, he's brought some of that, but he's also done some quite in, you know innovative things. So um, they've got a beauty salon concept which i think seems to be um thriving in india that's playing to particular indian cultural um sensitivities in terms of it evolving into like social hub around this um the, the beauty salons um which has been very successful they've done a um, outside catering thing called cumin i think mm. that's how you pronounce it um, that was launched in june last year and they've got 70 restaurants and even a food truck they've got 
the private rentals thing again pronunciation is amar i think stays and trails um overall though you know Taj let's be clear is a minnow it's less than 20,000 rooms globally um owned well barely over two and a half thousand are outside of India so um I think the center of its growth is going to remain in India it will spread I suspect um as it gets some um as it makes I, th I think it's inevitable it's going to make some great headway in India I mean it's it's so well positioned and under you know its current leadership which seems to be very on you know, very clued in very sharp um, um I think you know I've got high hopes for it I mean I think the a good example I think of what Chatwell has done would be say the ginger brand um now ginger was launched as a um, sort of uh, I guess what limited service concept a while ago before pre-Chatwell but he's changed it um, refreshed it and is now calling it Lean Lux and um, um, it's most like sort of Motel 1 it's he's keen on ownership however on that Motel 1 not just not just leases um, and I think that that's going to be a key part of unlocking the opportunities in the indian um, hotel market because it's a, you know it's not just at that super luxury end where the the taj sits with its hotels and palaces so uh, you know i've high hopes for the for the company and uh, um you, you know this is a uh, it's a long long grower it's not going to be an overnight thing you know who well unless you know maybe they take out itc i don't know maybe they pick up <laughs> well, yeah. there chris and um, <laughs> there may um, be opportunities absolutely <laughs> right let's turn to our five star and no star awards for this week and we're giving five stars this week to a hotel in the swiss resort of andamat uh, which has started taking payment in uh, cryptocurrencies you can settle your bill with uh, bitcoins or something else um so uh good i mean i don't know i don't don't think they're probably going to expect too many people to pay the bill with these kind of cryptocurrencies but um five stars for innovation for being out there and trying it mm, perhaps I, I have to say the whole crypto thing somewhat leaves me cold i just don't understand it and it it, it uh, just looks it's just so full of hype and um, it just yo-yos around all the time, but um, and certainly, well, you know, there's a lot of millionaires out there at the minute, thanks to crypto. But I, I do wonder whether it's actually going to be a fly too high to the sun and burn. But well, maybe now's the see. point. Now's the time to buy that expensive hotel suite while it's high. <laughs> you won't be able to afford it in a month or two. Uh, and anyway, no stars. We are giving to Booking.com, which has been served with a 17.5 million dollar fine by Russian regulators who say it's been uh, abusing its market position in the country. Uh, Booking says it's going to appeal. Um. Yeah, I mean, you look at any of the um, OTAs and their annual reports, there's just a big long list of the litigations they're involved in. And this, it, it's a very difficult um, area for regulation wise um, and we talked about last week didn't we Chris mm -hmm. about the French hoteliers yes. um, complaining um, about the OTAs so, I mean it's it's not going away unfortunately this this whole piece um, yeah you know how much in the Russian case there's a little bit of national politics going on there as well I don't know it's I don't know enough um, of, of exactly what's going on in that market to be for it to be clear but it's uh, it's um, certainly um, um, if you're a lawyer in this area, it's only going to be a growth area, I Absolutely. suspect. And on that happy note, we'll say goodbye for now. <laughs>